Hey, Deserving Listeners. So last year, uh, just over a year ago, I was at the Washington Association of Marriage and Family Therapy Conference here in Seattle. And there were a lot of really great classes I was taking. I was meeting a lot of people, meeting a lot of old friends, a lot of old colleagues, seeing some old alumni, some graduates from the program. And I also went to at, at conferences, if you're not familiar, uh, professional therapy conferences, there's often a room or a hallway or something where people will be presenting their research on what they call posters. And they are, uh, you know, related to either the topic of the uh, conference itself or just therapy in general. And it's typically grad students or post recent postgrads who have conducted some sort of research and have put together a poster. If you're not familiar, think about like, uh, you know, fifth grade science fair where it's an elementary school and some kid has an ex like a overflowing lava volcano and another kid did some sort of research about uh, different dogs in the neighborhood. And it, it's similar to that, except obviously more rigorously scientific and, and often represents hundreds of hours of work on behalf of the student or the, or the grad. And since research is uh, often chosen with care and with passion in an area that that student is passionate about, uh, it's, it's a really great thing to, for me to go up to these different posters because the presenter is usually standing right there, um, kind of eagerly wanting to talk about their research and hoping that someone will come up to the poster and say, Tell me about your research. I mean, that's the whole point there. There, and then at the end of the day, there's a award that is typically given out to like the best poster or something. And so uh, there were a number of Antioch students who had posters a year ago, and one of the posters, or actually two posters, I was fascinated by. Um, one was by Yolanda Christensen. Hers was on uh, uh, the issue, and I had her on the podcast, I don't know, six months ago, about uh, kids or teens who are uh, heavily involved in sports and they exist in a culture of heavy involvement in sports. Their whole, their whole life is like softball or soccer or, you know, wrestling or uh, track or, you know, gymnastics or football or something. And then they have an injury and it's this huge loss. It's just, it's just this mammoth change in their life. They might not ever be able to play like they did before. And their life just completely takes a left turn. None of their friends are the same. None of their life goals are the same. Uh, everything gets thrown apart there, you know, and me and Yolanda talked about that. Well, another poster that I asked to come on the podcast uh, a year ago was uh, Edil. She had uh, she was a supervisee of mine. She's a recent grad from Antioch and a marriage and family therapist. And she her poster was on painful sex and a particular condition that we'll get into in a second. And not only was it interesting to talk with her about it, but someone had emailed me just prior to that uh, conference, a listener, a patron perhaps, uh, asking me to talk about painful sex and, and 
what that's like and maybe some considerations for people, uh, what to do, maybe to destigmatize it, allow people to talk about it, this kind of stuff. And I, so I asked Adil to come on the podcast a year ago, but I think it took her this long to get up the nerve to come on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Adil. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. So you, you spell your name I-D-I-L, mm-hmm. and it's Edil. Mm-hmm. And uh, your last name is spelled... L-E-V-I-T-A-S. L-I-V-A-T-A-S. Right off the bat, where can people find you if they wanted to hire you as a therapist? So I work at a small group practice called Modern Therapy Seattle, which is in Seattle, in North Seattle. Um, They're welcome to email me or go to our website. Okay. Modern Therapy Seattle. Go to the website. Ideal. You want to hire her if, if you like her here. I sometimes get people asking me for uh, referrals in the area, and you're on my short list of, of people that I refer to. Uh, we've had other people from Modern Therapy Seattle, uh, namely the owner, uh, Kate. She is Stuart. She's been on the podcast talking about her open relationship handbook and about mm-hmm. flirting. She had a flirting class a long time ago. She's mm-hmm. also an Antioch grad herself. So... Let's talk about painful sex. What what was your poster about, Ideal? So my poster is about um, a specific vulvovaginal pain condition called provoked ves- vestibulodynia. It's kind mm. of a mouthful. Um, and one of the reasons that my poster is on this particular pain condition is that it's the main cause of um, genitopelvic pain or penetration disorder, which is a DSM-5 disorder that was added. It combined a couple of disorders in the DSM-4. Um, so as I started learning about painful sex, I found out that, I call it PVD for short, um, that PVD is one of the main causes of painful sex and of this disorder. So it's in the DSM, which would imply that it or require that it has some psychological component. Is that what they're saying? Not exactly. So, yeah, it's kind of a strange um, DSM-5 disorder in that it's saying, you know, this is a disorder of that's very physical. You know, this the, the criteria in the DSM-5 is, you know, pain with attempted or with intercourse or fear of pain or just um, inability for there to be penetrative sex at all, vaginal penetra- penetrative sex. Okay, so let's um, let's go through that a little bit. So mm-hmm. uh, the criteria are it, if you are uh, having pain during intercourse. So this is all intercourse space. Yeah. Uh, vaginal. Um, I mean, do they specify heterosexual because, you know, there could be lots of different kinds of things happening. Like, No, they don't. It can be for anybody with a vulva and vagina. Okay. And they say, you know, this is a disorder that only applies to females. I'm trying, you know, to be careful about how I talk about it. That Well, there's people that don't identify as women who have vaginas and vulvas. And, you know, mostly it's um, women who are coping with, the, with this. Okay. So people with vaginas who are experiencing pain during some form of penetration, whether that's with a penis or a finger or a... Yeah, or a, a toy of some Or a kind. toy or something. Mm-hmm. And they are ex- a lot of pain, right? Yeah. And not just like, oh, that was, a, that, was a, that was a spot I don't like to be poked. Let's avoid that spot. It's like pain. Is it pain everywhere? Like what, what kind of... What, how do people describe it? 
So the DSM-5 disorder is sort of a catch-all for a couple different things. So it can be, it can really vary. So, um, you know, so there's something called vaginismus, which was in the DSM-4, which is mostly about internal muscular pain um, inside the vagina. And then vestibulodynia, provoked vestibulodynia, is very topical pain um, in a specific area of the vulva right around the opening to the vagina. Um, and then the DSM-5 disorder also says, you know, maybe there's not pain, but there's just fear of pain. Maybe it's just someone saying like, you know, nothing can go in and there's not actually pain. It's just not a possibility for there to be penetration of any kind. So it's really, my understanding is that the DSM-5 version was created to kind of acknowledge that maybe there's a spectrum uh, and these, you know, various pain conditions are connected um, and they're often comorbid. So somebody who says I have vaginismus, nothing can go in, might also have topical pain. Um, but there's also these distinctions between them. It's a bit confusing. <laughs> so I don't know anything about this. Okay. So my language might... Uh, uh, reveal that. So the um, the spectrum you're talking about, are you talking about a spectrum between vaginismus and the new diagnosis? More like there's a spectrum between, there might be, and this is just an idea, there might be a spectrum between like topical pain and internal, you know, pelvic floor muscle pain. When you say topical pain, are you talking about opening pain? Topical meaning on the vulva, not the inside vulva, the not vagina. Inside. So the topical pain that people experience with PVD, for instance, and that's what I'm referring to, is really pain at very specific points right um, right on the outside of where the hymen meets the inner lip. Okay. So yeah. some people experience pain more on the outside and some people experience pain more on the inside. Yeah. So the outer pain that's right around the opening of the vagina is what provoked vestibulodynia. It used to be called vestibulitis, meaning like an issue of the vestibule, the entryway to the vagina. And then vaginismus, which is uh, research shows it seems like it's less prevalent. Maybe um, 6% of the population has experienced this either inability to have something inserted into the vagina or, um, you know, or, or just fear and this sense that, um, that it's just not an option. Right. Whereas when there's topical pain, there there is still an option for penetrative sex to happen. It's just going to burn and sting. I think of it as, you know, if, if you imagined a band of muscles that like a rubber band being an open wound and as it gets stretched, you know, salt being poured all over that rubber band as it stretches. Wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that that might be people's experience. And the... Uh, there's all. It sounds like you're also you're saying not an option. I, I, what I'm hearing you say is that uh, the idea of, of, of theorists or clinicians that work with this sort of thing. Do you work with this sort of thing? Do you have clients with this sort of thing? I have had a few. Okay, that the idea is is that for some people they have a functional biological condition that leads to pain. Right? There could be some kind of injury. Or I'm not a biologist, so some kind of uh, abnormality, shall we say, of um, you know maybe a small opening or or sensitive nerves on the outside, or um, 
you know, something that what we would typically call if we're going to do the, um, the split between mind and body, which is a little silly that it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a body uh, condition and not a mind condition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who don't have any functional biological uh, body, if we're going to separate mind and body problem. And, and they have either from trauma or from anxiety or, or a compulsion that they are worried that there's going to be a problem. And that makes it so that they either um, psychogenically have, have a pain or it causes them to not be aroused because they're so f- afraid that they experience pain when they try to have those kinds of sexual experiences. Is that you're making a face like that's I don't think that's quite it. But yeah. honestly, you know, my research isn't on vaginismus, the one where, you know, people will say it just doesn't go in. So I don't know as much about that. But I do think there's um, there is a real physical and muscular issue happening um, it, it might just be that the presenting problem is more fear than, you know, maybe there's no attempts. So they don't maybe, you know, maybe a doctor doesn't have the information on like how severe is the muscle tension because someone's just saying, you know, no, I'm too scared to even attempt this. Well, of course it's going to be painful. So what, that's rational fear, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's actually something that I think a lot of people have experienced is, Um, You know, when you just do, you know, a pelvic exam or, you know, there's a there's a pain test with a Q-tip for for vulva for provoked vestibulodynia, you know, the vulva looks normal. Um, And if, you know, someone looked, you know, was able to get a speculum in, it's going to look normal. So lots of people in the past have had the experience of being told, like, the pain's in your head. It's not. So, yeah, if I you know, was confusing about that. It's definitely not in people's head. It's, it's happening. And, um, so the condition your poster was on is something that is considered to be, uh, a biological condition that you can have a psychological reaction to. Yeah. And there's so, you know, there's so, um, connected that it's hard to even tease it apart that much. So there's a biological, um, you know, process happening where basically there's an issue with the signals from nerve endings and what they're sending to the brain. There's also more nerve endings firing than for somebody with PVD than someone who doesn't have it. Um, there's also more white blood cells at the, you know, at the areas where the p- pain is. For- Do they know why it happens? Not not yeah. really. I mean, there's so, some ideas, but... Yeah. So I'm not a biologist, as I've been saying. And the... Uh, but from biologists that I have listened to or read, it it's sounding similar, and correct me if I'm wrong, to things like um, IBS or... Yeah, and there's connections, actually. So, like, often people who have IBS or fibromyalgia right. or... Um, TMJ, which is like a jaw issue, yeah. will also have um, PVD. Interesting. Yeah. And there's, with IBS, um, uh, ba- what does IBS stand for? Irritable, Irritable bowel, bowel syndrome. syndrome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that the, because I did some research on IBS and 
there are, uh, because our body, certain conditions of the body really lend themselves to our ability to figure out what, what's wrong, like a cavity, for example, mm-hmm. or even something like Alzheimer's when, you know, post-mortem, you look, mm-hmm. you look at the brain and you're like, oh, there's a, there's like dead tissue or there's right. pathological tissue in the brain that, that must have resulted in this memory problem. But when it comes to IBS and when it comes to um, uh, fibromyalgia, it it's hard for them to identify something, you know, the the cause of it. And even when they do narrow down cause, it it seems to only apply to some of the people. Mm-hmm. A- and a lot of the things like increased white blood cell count, increased nerve nerve activity. That can be a secondary thing to something else mm-hmm. that can actually be psychogenic. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, like when we are, st- when I'm stressed out, my bowels aren't going to be working as well. Right. Yeah. So it's possible I could induce IBS temporarily for me if I was freaking out. Right. But the chance that that's the only answer, right, um, is a, is a, is. In terms of observation, it doesn't seem to to be likely. Yeah. Um, also, we have this cultural thing around like, well, it's all in your head, as if it's your choice or you're a weakling or something. Yeah. And that's why, like, you know, I don't want to separate the mind and the body. It's like, um, to me, if something's in your head, okay, great. It's still fuck. It's still horrible. You know, it's yeah. still painful, and right. it's still debilitating and there's still stigma and there's still like no help out there and there's still no answer to that. You can't just say, okay, stop thinking about that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so anyway, um, but from the sound of it, it sounds like the researcher saying there seems to be something different about some people in terms of their, their biology. Yeah. That is elusive to our current scientific technologies and it might be a number of conditions that result to this this can cause a from and from what i know about ibs because the because the gut is the they call it the gut brain system Mm because it's serotonin is in the gut like when you take an ssri you can get constipated Mm -hmm. so your mood gets better but you're constipated because your your gut and your if you think about it we're basically just walking guts like every like our muscles are on our bodies to get us to things so we can shove it into our mouth to make things go into our gut. You know, right, yeah. like we everything we do is designed to get stuff into our gut. And so it just makes sense that our primary sort of axis is our brain gut, you know, uh, system. Right. And so um, when we have complications there. Uh, it involves psychology. It involves, um, it's all like, you know, intermixed mm-hmm. and stuff. And so of course with sex and culture and uh, intimacy and attachment and, and past experiences with the pain and, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's going to cause like, a just an, an evolving syndrome over time, but I'm still sort of baffled as to why it's in the DSM. You know, it's like, yeah, uh, you know, like, like erectile dysfunction, for example, um, is that still in the DSM? Yeah. I don't, we both don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure it used to be obviously a psychological erectile dysfunction should be in the DSM. Right? Yeah. I think 
but but yeah. a biological thing like you had a injury or something or you have it or you were born with a condition that it makes it difficult for you to have an erection in any circumstance that mm-hmm. shouldn't be in the DSM just well and you know it just I mean? seems like that's part of like what's so odd about the DSM is that some you know medical issues make it in where it's like well when this causes psychological distress but the, then it's a disorder. But in cancer the DSM. causes psychological distress. I know, yeah. So, it is know. very strange. I mean, maybe I guess the nice way of thinking about it might be that it's a way of recognizing how many people are coping with the distress of this um, you know, of of pain during intercourse. You may I mean, maybe that's why it's in there. It I, is I odd. Would, I, yeah, I again I have no idea. But I would suspect that there are people who uh, think of it since it's unclear they think of it at least for some people that it's at least partially psychogenic is is my is what i'm thinking the dsm writers are are saying because otherwise it wouldn't be in there you know so but yeah. again you know I, I have no idea i i could be talking out of my butt yeah it's just i don't know it's i my hope is that with it being in the dsm maybe, you know, more clinicians and students are going to be exposed to at least having a general sense that this is something people are struggling with and coping with and, um, and that there's a place, you know, for us to support them in um, having a more satisfying sex life and, you know, it not impacting their relationship, right. um, which, is, which is actually mostly what my poster was about, which was that, you know, like so many medical things, um, just addressing it as a biological issue leaves out all these other ways that it's impacting people's lives. Um, and there is, you know, really pretty good medical treatment for PVD. Um, and the outcomes that are measured are, is there a decrease in pain during intercourse? Um, which makes sense. But what, like what's getting left out, right. Is like, how is sexual communication between the couple? Cause it, you know, maybe got really hard, you know, while they were coping with this at its worst, um, you know, how's relationship satisfaction, you know, how are people's de- depressive symptoms? These are all things that, you know, PVD correlates with pretty negative, um, yeah. outcome measures. Yeah. I mean, people in our society in general are, because our society is so Victorian and backward when it comes to sex, right. it's really hard for people to know what to say or to feel confident to say things or feel um, comfortable having conversations about such matters, even if they're good things, you know, let alone tense things like, mm-hmm. hey, when we have sex, it hurts. Yeah. You know, and it, it'll throw. So let's just take a heterosexual couple as an example. Mm-hmm. The wife is, you know, is this hurting, but I, you know, and I, and let's say she also has been having some libido problems, which would make sense mm-hmm. given the fact that it hurts. Right. And over the past couple of years, you know, he's been, the husband's been like, we don't have enough sex. And she's like, oh, okay. And maybe I'm, maybe it's in my head or maybe I, um, I, you know, I need to, Maybe I shouldn't be married to him. Maybe, you know, because with my previous partner, it wasn't this bad or something, you know, like there's all these thoughts that run through your head. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then you sort of endure it and it's painful. And maybe even you're just laying there as a woman, just like, okay, I hope this ends soon because I want him to be happy. Yeah. But I don't. But then he's like, 
this isn't any fun. She's just laying there. Right. And it's over. He's upset. He walks away. She's crying. You know, what do you do? Gosh. And then, and then it's just like, this could have all been helped if our society wasn't so fucking stupid, you know, and could just be like, Hey, uh, so I want to have sex with you. I like having sex with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it hurts. I don't know why. Maybe we should talk to someone about right. this. I'm sure <laughs> yeah. it's not you. I'm sure it's not my fault. I know that, you know, cause I have confidence and, um, yeah. society hasn't taught me that all my problems are the women's fault and sex. You know, it's like we live in a wonderful society and I should be able to just admit that, ow, this hurts right now. Why does this hurt? Um, let's figure this out. Cause boy, do I want to have sex with you all the time and I don't want this getting in the way. Can we, could we, you know, could we stop having sex this way? Maybe we could. Do yeah, that would be so awesome. Yeah. yeah, I love the yeah you painted that picture of how it could go if everything was different, right? right. Um, if the patriarchy didn't exist, <laughs> um, yeah. And you actually pinpointed a lot of the issues that come up for for women. Um, you know, so some there's been a qualitative study done that showed that you know a lot of a lot of people's reasons were like, I don't want to lose my partner, so I'm going to have sex anyways. Or, um, you know, sometimes even young women not knowing, you know, or inexperienced folks not knowing that sex, you know, isn't normally this painful and thinking like, well, maybe this is just what it's like. Um, yeah, and and one of the things that I was really interested in is, you know, okay, so we know there's good medical treatment, we know that couples are getting impacted and the individual, you know, mental health. What, are, what is the medical treatment? There's a bunch of options, actually. Um, so, I assume like lube is like something to try for some people right off the bat, right? Yeah, totally. Because friction is going to make it worse. Um, for sure. Um, yeah, friction, pressure, and pressure basically are the things that hurt. So like um, maybe not as hard sex or something? Or smaller things. <laughs> what do you mean by pressure? Yeah, exactly? well, just even so the so the so the assessment, the medical assessment to diagnose people for this is the pressure is just a Q-tip pressing pretty gently on specific points. So even that pressure, or the or the you know the stretching open of the vaginal. Um, okay. Opening. So so there are what I'm hearing. Uh, gynecologists who specialize in this, yeah, who have a series of tests that they run, t- and they probably have like a scale, like Q-tip pressure three, yes, exactly, no response, yeah, pressure five, uh, mild response, uh, stretching of opening one centimeter, uh, response, you know, like uh, there's different tests they do to see like where the what causes the pain and that kind right. of right and the q-tip test on you know on the vest the vulvar vestib- vestibule is the main one for um for pvd and then you know sometimes you know putting a speculum is an option sometimes it's not depending on the severity of the pain um how do those people get through uh pap smears with great difficulty i think and is that the point when they the physicians often hear about this sort of thing. I mean, do the, is, is this the, are physicians the main people who hear about this condition? Yeah. I think people seek medical treatment first and then, you know, go through seeing many, many people before they get an accurate diagnosis. They might not get one at all because it's actually not, 
you know, something most gynecologists might even know very much about. Although I do think, I think that's changed quite a bit in the last, you know, five to 10 years, but they still might not really know how to diagnose it or what treatment is. Um, And I know you asked about treatment options and there's a few different ones. There's topical medication that basically is rewiring um, the signals your nerves are sending to your brain. Hmm. Like Um, a steroid or something? Yeah. uh, Well, actually, maybe. But no, the main things are, you know, a numbing cream. So it's actually, you know, changing that response so that you can't experience as much pain. And then um, there's another medication that does the same thing It's similar to what's in, it's the same thing that's in seizure medication. So it's actually like slowing down. Mm. Um, And that's topical too? Or that's a. Yeah. So that will be a topical medication too. The physical therapy is often a really big component for people that also have um, muscle hypertonicity, which, you know, is just muscle tension. Like everywhere? Um, No, it's physical therapy for pelvic. Um, pelvic floor muscles. Oh. So like Kegels and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So like one, you know, course of treatment might be just doing physical therapy where you have, I think you mentioned this, you know, increasing sized dilators, you know, um, being used to like, um, help relax the muscles and practice relaxing them more and more. Yeah. Mm. And Kegels. Mm. Um, and then there's surgery as an option. I don't know that much about that. I know. Um, Would that just be like cutting the nerves or something? I don't really know. Yeah. Much would, about the surgical. Would Botox option. be a thing? Because Botox. Yes. Okay. And I don't know much about Botox, but I well, have Botox seen that. kills the nerves. That's that's okay. that's what it's doing. Yeah, I was wondering about that because I definitely have seen that in the lit lit reviews and like meta analyses, but I you know wasn't doing as much reading about medical stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm only 80% sure of that. I'm, again, it, this is based on people telling me what Botox does. But yeah, it, it's a toxin a um, or it's a uh, bacteria or, you know, anyway, mm-hmm. that kills the nerves, I believe. And so when you do it in your face, it uh, kills the nerves, which causes the muscles to to relax. Right. Okay. And, and that's then, why it's used for like wrinkles or something right because then in because when, when your muscles are relaxed your face sort of smooths out right you know? yeah and so i yeah. can imagine that that might help with mm-hmm. with this as well yeah and then you know on our side of things the treatment that is helpful is cbt and mindfulness practices and um and integration of those things right and so what's specifically like like what would you do with CBT and, and relaxation, that kind of stuff? Well, I think for, in terms of CBT, one of the most important things um, that I think we can help clients understand, similar to any, you know, phobia, is that there's this connection, there's this fear avoidance cycle that that will develop um, because of the pain. Um, and I think clients don't always know that they're kind of helping maintain uh both the pain and just nothing improving. Um, so, you know, as somebody is nervous and anticipating pain, they're probably not going to be super physically relaxed. Um, so if they're tense and then have sex anyways, um, it's more likely that the pain will be worse. It's definitely not going to be less. Right. Um, and then, you know, with that comes this, um, can come pain catastrophization. So it's, you know, helpful to, 
educate people about that and kind of change those automatic thoughts of right. expecting it to feel really terrible. Um, right. So the catastrophization is, oh, my God, you know, if I feel pain, it'll be the end of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be horrible. It's yeah. going to be the biggest yeah. pain and it's going to ruin my life and or it's going to ruin my life. And what you help people with is um, you might experience pain and it's you've experienced pain before and you probably experience pain in the future. It's just, you know, it's you've lived through it and you'll live through that time again. It won't be great. It'll hurt. But, you know, it's not something to ruminate on, because if you ruminate on that thought, you will cause not only tension and less arousal and avoidance of the whole thing altogether, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. um, also it might cause it to just be more painful in the situation in and of itself anyway. Yeah, yeah. And there's this, you know, I'm sure as you know, this like hypervigilance that can come with like monitoring, you know, the sensations in your body. Um, yeah, and um, the other thing I was thinking about is just that you mentioned earlier is like this scenario you painted of how badly things could go for someone um, is that one place that is sort of kind of where it'd be great for there to be more research and it's starting to happen is on, you know, where does the partner come in and how can they be integrated into treatment? Right. Because that's what your poster was about, right? Yeah. 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 Mostly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how a partner interacts with someone in that moment where they're like, I'm, you know, feeling pain or nervous about feeling pain can make a really huge difference. Mm. Um, so a lot of the research I read was about how important these responses are in a moment of pain. Let's say, um, you know, someone winces, mm -hmm. right? There's um, three general ways somebody can respond. One is uh, negatively, which is basically what it sounds like you know, either like being hostile or acting, you know, seeming frustrated. And then there's solicitous responses, which um, looks very nice, you know, might be like, hey, it's okay, we don't need to do this. Like, do you want to finish that movie we were watching? And then there's facilitative responses, which are being like, okay, like, maybe we can shift positions. Why don't we do something else? Let's try and figure out, you know, let's focus on what feels really good and find a way to do something less painful, but continue sexual activity. Or be open if that's what the person wants to do. Yeah, yeah. in a non-pressuring way. Right. The, the soliciting <laughs> yeah. sounds like uh, overreactive or something or or um, uh, too nice or I don't know. Yeah, it's really nice, but also feeds into this fear avoidance cycle where right. it's like as soon as something, you know, hurts or is scary, we're going to stop. We're going to run away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. The, and the first response is to elaborate on that is um, quite common because for men, if we're sticking to heterosexual couples, the uh, men are taught that, you know, women are supposed to just be infatuated or just head over heels with everything sexual about a man. Like the, the man is supposed to walk into the room hairy chested and mustachioed like, you know, uh, the late great, um, uh, Smokey and the Bandit. And you're supposed to just, you know, 
I'm going to have you and you and, and the woman's supposed to be, you know, this is the movies. You right, know? It's right, like, oh right. my God, you're the best lover. <laughs> you have the biggest penis. Right. You can last all night. I don't, I've, every other man I has paled in comparison right. to you. This is, oh, I can't even, I want it all night long. Right. That, you and know. even though we haven't talked about what we're into at all, yeah. it's just going to go amazingly. And even though, you know, you're a 22 year old, uh, you know, bear chested, you know, non mustachioed guy <laughs> and you know nothing about sex and, mm-hmm. and, uh, except for what you've seen on the internet and, you know, God knows what that's taught you. Right. And so, um, and, and, and yet, uh, those, that's the duality that's happening in the man's mind. And so as he's having sex with a woman, even if it's, you know, 10 years into a relationship, it's the same. It doesn't go away. It's not mm-hmm. like masculinity like fades, you know, it's right. just like it's in some ways it gets more intense because you're, mm-hmm. you're potentially not getting the gratification of what dating can provide. But anyway, so then you're sitting there and you're just like, okay, th- you know, I, I really hope that, you know, sh- this is the most amazing sex she's ever had in her life. You know, this like every time has to just be I just have to give her the most amazing. Yeah, there's and, so much pressure, too. Yeah. And then she winces. Right. Yeah. And and she you can tell she doesn't want to reveal that she's win- it's sort of like when I'm at the dentist there. I have these front teeth, my front lower teeth. <laughs> every time I go, do you have this where they. I have so much tartar on my front lower teeth, mm-hmm. just the first two middle teeth. Like yeah. they sort of breeze over the molars and everything else. And then they get to these two front teeth in the front. Cause I, I have like salivary, very glands right there. So yeah. And they're like these ones, it takes them like a half an hour. I don't know. If it t- it, and it hurts too. Cause they're really just jamming yeah. in there, you know? And I don't want to hurt her feelings because I know she's trying really. She has a job right. to do. She can't not do it. She's got to do it. Right. But it hurts intensely. And I'm trying to not wince. You know, I'm trying to like go. Ah, right. You Just know, bear it. Yeah. But sometimes I wince and um, she can sort of see my eyes sort of clench underneath those really dorky sunglasses they give yeah, you. Yeah, they're like, huge. They're, you're like Terminator. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll be back or whatever. And so, yeah, so, you know, she's trying not to reveal because she wants it because she has all these messages too. like you have to be uh, a vessel of sexuality for him to enjoy himself. And and you're supposed to be into it all the time as well. You're supposed to he's supposed to be amazing. You know, you're you're supposed to be a vixen, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so she doesn't want to reveal. But then so he sees that face and he's like. Wait, so behind this very thin veil of fantasy that I'm the most amazing sexual partner she's ever had, mm-hmm. she's trying to, she, a little bit of communication was emerged behind that. Then, you know, crestfallen and hurt and like right. shame and what's wrong with me? What else has she kept from me? Like it just, it's a flood of, wow. of pain yeah. and hurt. And then it's just, and then depending on how you cope with such things, you either say like, um, oh, what's wrong? You know, is, is any, you know, if you're secure or you've been taught how to function in such manners, but more than likely you're just going to be like, oh shit, you know, uh," you know, just a freak out thing. And you'll either avoid by doing the soliciting or you'll get hostile. You have negative reaction and just be like, be like, what, 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 what I do, you know, like we're, it's, 
it's your fault. You, you're not relaxing or, right. you know, or, um, you know, I don't know what a guy would say in a situation like that or like, ah, uh, you're just a cold fish or something or I don't know. Yeah. What, something what, really unkind. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, for, you know, partners who are very respectful and really care about their partner and don't want them to be in pain, it really makes sense that they might end up providing these solicitous responses, um, you know, because they don't know that there's this option of a facilitative response and like they, they don't know how to figure out what the line is necessarily between you know, encouragement and pressure because, you know, lots of men, they're like, I don't want to do anything that pressures this person actually. So I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to be like, it's in your court. Whenever you want to stop, we can stop. You know, and if somebody's in that fear avoidance cycle, it's very likely they're going to be like, okay, let's stop. Like it started hurting. Let's stop. So there's two types of that that I could see happening. One is, is a, I don't know, a genuine, the ball's in your court. I'm, and I, and I'm cool. I'm cool. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're cool externally and internally. The other one is a passive aggressive. I'm cool. Mm-hmm. of just like, Hey, the ball's in your court. And, but in the, per, in the man's mind, he's just like, she better fucking come, you know, she better pursue me or else I'm going to punish her for, um, not doing her job in the marriage or something. Right. Know? Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, it's really clear that there's all these places that a couple therapist you know, can play a really useful role in right. helping the couple see this as, you know, it's not just her issue. Like this is a problem that you as a couple are coping with and, um, you know, and that he's he or you know, whoever, or the partner is also being really impacted. Like there might also be, you know, a big sense of loss or disappointment or grief, you know, for the male partner too, or the, you know, or not male partner. Um, I know we keep talking about heterosexual couples, but, um, and that they probably aren't going to find anywhere else that they're going to get support for that. Right. You know, maybe even more so actually than the person with PVD, because at least, um, you know, for people who are, you know, female socialized, you know, they, we talk to each other about sex, about feelings and relationships in a way that, you know, male socialized folks just, that's not an option. Um, for folks as much. So I could see for partners this actually being just as isolating and difficult to cope with as for the person that has it. Yeah. And all this applies to any sexual issue along these lines, whether it be erectile dysfunction or other, what other kinds of vagina or, you know, related conditions are there? Are, Are they similar to this in terms of the presentation other sexual dysfunction yeah because you said in the very beginning you said like this is a very common this -hmm. is the most common condition that causes pain yeah with sex so there are other conditions that cause similar pain yeah well i and we talked about it a little bit that there's this there used to be in the DSM four something called vaginismus and that that can be painful too. And I would imagine a lot of what we're talking about is going to apply to that too. Um, And all these conditions, they don't necessarily know what exactly is wrong and don't have like a, like a cure for it other than symptom reduction physically. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, and the the treatments can be very successful for 
PVD. Um, the ones you mentioned. Yeah, they they when I looked at it at the you know meta analyses, it was like, oh wow, there's actually a lot of great options that most folks don't know about, unfortunately. Um, and at the same time, you know the the CBT you know treatment manuals on how to do CBT for PVD, you know, will say like make sure you know you're helping people understand this might be a lifelong condition that they're learning to manage and how to have, you know, a satisfying sex life in spite of the pain. For some people, it might go down. For some people, you know, it might be very similar for most of their life. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Okay. So what haven't we hit on yet that you wanted to talk about? Hmm. Anything? What was That was your main poster was... Hmm couples therapy regarding this condition and hope for the future, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. I think, you know, if this comes up for clinicians, if they see, if they're seeing a couple or an individual who brings this up, I think one thing that's kind of unique to the role that we can play that's worth mentioning is that I think there's a place where the therapist can kind of help coordinate care. Um, and be a place for that person to come back to after they've gone and gotten a medical diagnosis um, and a place for the partner to get included in treatment as well. Yeah. So I guess the only other things that I would say based on my experience and I think based on the emails that I would get about this is that there are uh, also people who either have comorbid or just in and of itself trauma regarding sexual abuse or assaults yeah that or even just trauma because you you can be traumatized even if it wasn't in your mind an assault like like i could imagine someone having consensual sex with someone that they love and something just goes horribly wrong like there's something that gets poked that just should not have been poked. And if you're somewhat on the neurotic end of the scale, it could really freak you out if you're, you know, worried about body issues or, you know, hypochondriacal or something. And that can be traumatic to you. You can just be like, oh my God, what the hell was that that just happened, you know? So anyway, but obviously if you were sexually abused growing up, you can develop essentially PTSD surrounding your your sexual organs, whether no matter what gender you are. And that can lead to this psychogenic pain or at the very least uh, non-arousal that can lead to, to pain. You know, for people with penises, uh, it, when they're not aroused, it, it, they can't uh, do something uh, typical, you know, with, with their penis. When a person with a vagina is not aroused, they could still conceivably try to do things, and some yeah. people can actually be fine with it. Right. But it can lend itself to some, you know, a lot of pain or um, inability to uh, have something be put in, or uh, you know, all sorts of issues, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, even chafing and bleeding, um, you know, yeah, you know, all sorts of uh, bad things, and. Particularly if your entire life you've 
literally never had an enjoyable sexual experience, which, which I've worked with clients who have mm-hmm. had that, you know, mm-hmm. they're 35 and they'll be like, yeah, I've, I've never really enjoyed sex. I've, I've had it. And, you right. know, and I, I guess it's nice to bond with people, but I've never been like, it's, it's never been something I was fully wanting to do, or right. at the very least I had complicated feelings while I was doing it. Yeah. And maybe it's not about pleasure. Right. It's about pleasing or something like that. Yeah. And, or I don't know, lots of different reasons people use sex. Um, and so that can cause pain too in sex, you know, completely separate from the condition that, that you're talking about that is more related to a lifetime of bad sex and a, a, a just a rational association of sex with bad things and right. that c- compounding all the compromises you've made over your life regarding sex and yeah and so emerging out of that would be a whole different pathway right, right? and it takes a skilled perhaps you know mental health clinician in, in combination with a expert gynecologist to determine what that treatment should look like for people yeah because the other thing is, is, which would make it hard for this, is like most women have been assaulted or at the very least had mm-hmm. s- some negative sexual experiences that could have affected things, right? Especially yeah. if they've had pain. Um, and so teasing that out, trying to figure out like, you know, what's the best treatment modality? I guess on the plus side, the treatment that you laid out are more short term and easier to figure out if they're going to fail or not. You know, the, um, you know, assessment by a physician, uh, maybe a topical cream mm-hmm. and then, um, some mindfulness, relaxation, decontastrophization, uh, couples therapy. You could do this in a month, you know, like in, you know, four weeks, if you had one or two appointments a week, you could, you know, you could get that done pretty quickly too. Yeah. To, well, yeah, and, and some of the trials were, you know, a course of eight weeks of um, psychoed CBT. Great. You know, and then another one is 12 weeks of couples, yeah. you know, couples therapy. But honestly, I, I've i done couples therapy along thing, things along these lines, not this specifically. Mm-hmm. In half an hour, I can fix a couple. <laughs> because they've had a lifetime, you know, 45 years of mm-hmm. the, the stupid society we live in. And... Mm-hmm. It takes me probably even just 10 minutes to just de- dismantle the whole thing. And people in Seattle are pretty open to it. So it doesn't take much to push them over the edge. And they're just like, oh, yeah, like, why are we doing it this way? Yeah, yeah. And it just opens all these doors, you know, and, th- and then they can figure it out on their own. I just had that actually with a couple recently who, um, you know, fits that description of having essentially a number of years of not being satisfied sexually as a couple. And then I talked with them for about a half an hour and um, they contacted me after that and said, like, that's all we needed. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) We just needed that little bit of redirection of our, of our perspective, more flexibility, more, you know, the suggestion of more communication, the normalization of it. Uh, the agreement that we made in that half an hour to talk more, you know, and be nicer and stop seeing it in this certain light, you know, right. and um, 
because essentially, I won't go into specifics, but they had convinced themselves of things that were not likely to be true mm-hmm. to cope with the fact of kind of common marital sexual problems in the past mm-hmm. 10, 20 years. Anyway. Yeah. I think that's like just such a wonderful example too of, you know, some of the really fundamental, um, guiding principles of sex therapy where it's like sometimes all people need is permission, yeah. you know, to do things differently, to think of things differently, some li- limited information and some really specific suge- suggestions. And then maybe long-term couple therapy isn't necessary. Right. Um, yeah, it's really cool to hear about that case. So the eight, four to eight week thing could be done pretty quickly. Um, I, you know, worry that in a lot of places that listen to this podcast, they might not know who to contact. Is there a, is there a national organization? It was obviously ASECT, mm-hmm. the um, American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors and Therapists, or what's that? What's the ASECT stand for? Um, yeah, American Association of Sex Educators and Counselors. What's the T? And therapists, I guess. Is that? Right? Yeah. Is it? I don't know. I'm not ASECT yeah. certified, but... Um, We're starting an ASECT program at Antioch. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so we'll be much more, um, you know, in association with them. But uh, so obviously going to an ACE, so going to that website, finding a therapist in your area associated with that, um, they likely are partnered with a expert gynecologist in their Yeah, area. I think they would have good resources. I think that's a really good idea for starting there. Um, and then the other, you know, resources that I just think of for, you know, my own work is... There's something called the National Vulvodynia Association. Vulvodynia is the old word for um, provoked vestibulodynia. Huh. Um, and they have Sounds a lot like of... like a Greek goddess, you know? Like <laughs> yeah, Athena, does. Aphrodite, and vulvodynia. Yeah. <laughs> the goddess of vulva. Right. It does sound like that, yeah. Um, especially if you don't know that dynia, you know, it's it means pain. Oh, it does? Yeah. <laughs> What other words do we have dinia in? Like uh, this is the only context I've really heard heard it in. There's also this word allodynia, which a- which also basically means pain. What's aloe? What's aloe? I don't know. Maybe at the site or aloe. Aloe isn't that old people? Aloe. Al- yeah, and it's spelled A L L O. Yeah. Well, yeah. someone out there is throwing their phone at the wall because they know exactly what this right. means. Right. Um, um, and know. then the other, and then there are these this group of researchers and clinicians that I think are mostly in Canada that are developing these courses of CBT treatment. Um, so if people wanted to contact me and get, you know, contact information for those folks, um, that's an option too. And they, I know some of those treatment manuals are available to clinicians through them. So modern therapy, Seattle, uh, ideal and, just in case you're not working for Modern Therapy Seattle, like, you know, 10 years from now and someone hears this, do you have another website? I don't. I have, I mean, I have an email address that, at Antioch that people can contact me well, at. Well, just spell your name again so people, because I'm sure you'll have a, a website at some point. So yeah. spell, spell your name again. So it's Ideal, I-D-I-L, Levitas, L-E-V-I-T-A-S. Ideal Levitas. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about painful sex, deal. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think it's an important topic that is almost never talked about. Mm-hmm. And I think way more common than people think it is. 
And even if it's just slightly common, I think those people need more contact with people like you who can Mm -hmm. help them out with that. Take care of yourself out there because you deserve it. You really, really do.